Good morning. I'm an alcoholic, and my name is John Kane. By the grace of God, I haven't had a drink since St. Patrick's Day, 1985. My home group is the Last Mile Group, which is a Sunday, uh, is a Monday, uh, 7:30 Step and Tradition Group in Audubon, New Jersey, and certainly it's the greatest home group in the universe. I've heard that if you don't feel that way about uh, your home group, you should probably get involved to make it that way. I'm really uh, grateful to have been asked to come here, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I have uh, here a, a, a great cast of supporters that are just wonderful. <laughs> they have been the epitome of an example to me that uh, the role of uh, service is to serve, not to govern. And they, uh, they have uh, dedicated their time and their effort and done an awful lot to make sure that this program was here when I got here and to make sure that it'll be here when we have those who are close to us who may need it. And even those that we don't know. As Harold said, people around the world are now really getting involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I think of, a, of, a, of an old song, it's called Love Story, and it begins with, where do I begin to tell the story of how great a love can be? And the, uh, the story of uh, my story is, is, is just that. I haven't had anything but exposure to great love ever since I've come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to stop drinking. I came because everybody else wanted me to stop drinking. And St. Patrick's Day in 1985 was a Sunday. And on that particular Sunday, my family gathered, and uh, at dessert, they excused the youngest children. And I have to do a little intervention here so that you understand. Uh, my, my wife and I have ten children. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I often say that uh, since she doesn't drink, that she used to get me drunk and take advantage of me. <laughs> Nevertheless, we excused the younger children. They excused the younger children, and uh, they, that left half the table after. <laughs> And then uh, there was a Catholic priest there, which is not unusual in an Irish family, to have a Catholic priest on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, they then did my fifth step for me. It began by my wife saying to me, we want to talk to you about a problem you have called alcoholism. Now, we had talked about it before because, you know, when you're a drunk, your family knows it. And just for, as an example, the, uh, the previous Thanksgiving, we were supposed to go down to visit my wife's family in Roanoke, Virginia. 
And she said that she wasn't going to let me go because I always got drunk and embarrassed the family. Unless I did something about my drinking. So as we got closer to that Thanksgiving, I said, uh, she asked me, she said, uh, you know, have you done anything about your drinking? I said, yes, I have. And she said, and exactly what did you do? I said, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, wow, that's great. I said, yep. And she said, and? I said, well, they told me that I'd have to attend one of their meetings. And she said, yes. And I said, uh, and I agree. She said, that's just wonderful. I said, the next meeting we're going to have in this area sometime next summer. So I went to Roanoke, Virginia, got drunk, she got embarrassed, you know, and she, she learned that another little chip in the, in, the, in the pistol that says, you know, I'm basically a pathological liar. And uh, so this time when they intervened me, they uh, said that uh, my bags were packed and that they wanted me to go to a rehab, and they really did 20 years of my life. My, uh, my children did all the things, they remembered every single thing that I had ever done that had hurt them. And they put it all on the table in front of this priest. That's all I could think of at the time. I just didn't want any parts of this whole deal. They were all crying. They were very upset. I was sitting there stoic, and I refused to go anywhere. I didn't care whose bags were packed, you know. And uh, they, they continued their impassioned plea, and. Uh, my wife said, uh, finally, she had always said to me that I was worth fighting for and that she would do battle and that she promised that she wouldn't lose to a bottle of booze. And this time she said to me, I've given up. I'm not, uh, I've, I've lost. Booze has won and if you won't go to a rehab, then you will just go. And so uh, I said, there has to be an alternative. And she said, there is one, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know that they meet regularly in this area. <laughs> so I said yes, and the family got up and left the room, left me with the priest. And the priest said, you've got to sign up with AA, and here's how you do it. Here's the name of this guy, Jack, and here's Jack's phone number, and you have to do it. And if you don't, you're evicted. And I'll make sure that they evict you. So I became aware of the fact that uh, they were serious. And I, I uh, was at that time, I was a daily drunk. Um, I don't know what that means to you guys, but to me it means I was drinking all the time around the clock. I was, uh, I was, I'll give you an example. You know, my wife locked up the booze at the time of this intervention. And we have a big house because we have a lot of kids. And uh, so we have this room for the booze. And she has the key still. And since the time that I've been intervened, we have actually served alcohol in the house to everybody who cared for a drink. And that's uh, coming up on, it's just past 14 years, and not a single drop has been bought in the entire 14 years. <laughs> I used to worry about running out. 
the way the priest got involved was that my uh, my oldest son, who at that time was 15 years old, uh, went to get him and said, we've got to do something about my father. At, at one point in my drinking career, um, rather than talk to me, one of my daughters took all her acne medication and uh, because she thought she was in trouble with me and and she uh, she became comatose for four days. We had to rush her to the emergency room and she came very close to death. And in that, uh, in the process, state law required us to go to see psychiatrists as a, as a family in that. At one point when I saw the psychiatrist, uh, he said to me that uh, maybe uh, I drank too much. And I simply stopped going to those meetings. When I was, uh, I had to get an insurance physical and uh, I, I went into the doctor at 8.30 in the morning, and the uh, doctor said to me uh, a couple of days later after the results were in, he called me and told me he was a friend of mine and he wanted to see me in person. And he said, how much do you drink? And I said, I like to drink socially. <laughs> he said, well, when you came to have your examination, what do you estimate was the uh, last time that you had had a drink? I said, with dinner the night before. He said, at 8.30 in the morning, your blood alcohol level was 0.18. <laughs> and he said, we didn't recognize that you're a walking drunk. But you're a walking drunk. You're always intoxicated. So I stopped seeing him, too. <laughs> So I detoxed after they had this intervention, and uh, I detoxed at home. I went through the squirrelies and the heebie-jeebies and the voices and the sounds, and, the, and I came out. It took about 10 days to really come out the other side. When I came out the other side, all I wanted to do was drink. And I knew that they were going to throw me out, and so my ego got in the way. I refused to get thrown out. I was really at that place that they call, you know, the rock and the hard place. So I went to the priest, and uh, this was uh, March 31st. It had been about two weeks, and uh, I went to the priest and said, I can't find Jack. And he said, come to the church tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock, I'll introduce you. So I came to the church at 7 o'clock in the morning, and Jack took me home to his apartment, and he gave me a copy of a big blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said, uh, I told him what I told you, and he said, you know, you really can't do it for your family. You have to do it for yourself. And you know how much sense that makes when you're first coming around. <laughs> do what for yourself? Stop drinking? That's like, I'm, I'm, I'm here because this is the end of life as I know it. Alcoholics Anonymous is where they go to put people who can't handle life. So he said, but what you really need to do is go to a meeting, and I, 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 can't, I have to work tonight, so I'll get a friend to take you. And while I'm sitting there, he called his friend, and he picked up the phone, and the guy answered the phone. He says, hey, Brother Bill. And I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, they call each other brother. But I met uh, Bill in the parking lot of the church that night, and he took me to my hometown's uh, uh, meeting. It was Collingswood Monday night, and I live in Collingswood, New Jersey. And so he started talking to me about 
If I saw anybody there I knew to remember that they'd be there for the same reason I was? Well, first of all, I didn't know I'd know anybody in an AA meeting. And secondly, I didn't know what reason I was there for anyway. And all I wanted to do was to jump out of the car. But I got there. We walked down this uh, church basement. We walked in. There was about eight guys there. They all came up and they said, Brother Bill, how are you? And then they hugged him. <laughs> Talk about cult. I said, these guys call each other brother, and they hug each other. I mean, what the hell am I doing here? There's something. Not only that, there was, it was a big room, and they had two setups. Uh, one said beginners, and they said, uh, we don't know what's going on tonight, but the regular complement isn't here, so we're not going to have the beginners meeting. Everybody will have to sit up front. And uh, I thought, geez, here I am in a cult, and I'm going to sit up with the pros. First crack out of the The guy who uh, opened the meeting that night said, I'm an alcoholic, my name is Peter, and the reason why I say it that way is because if I forget that I'm an alcoholic, I forget my name and everything else about my life. And it's the very first thing that I heard in AA, and it, it's all, it stuck with me. And I felt right away like I belonged. I'd been drinking for 25 years. The first time I picked up a drink, I was in the Conrad Hilton Hotel in Chicago when I was 18 years old. I drank more than a fifth of VO, first crack out of the bag. I'm lucky I'm not dead. And the guy I was with and I got mad at the television because it didn't have on what we wanted it, so we threw it out of the 18-story window. Fortunately, it landed on the six-story mezzanine roof, and the management came up, and I got away by running down the 18-story fire escape outside the Conrad Hilton in January in Chicago. That's the beginning of the story. <laughs> By the time I came to the end, our tenth child was uh, just uh, five months old. He had been operated on under emergency conditions for the second time at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And they said he was in severe danger of death because he hadn't recovered from the first surgery that was only 30 days earlier. And I was checking on him from a saloon. And that's when my son went to get the priest. And at that time, they got together and they went to professional help and they worked on figuring out how to get to me. And they did it by practicing on a Friday night because I never came home on Friday night. And as I said, St. Patrick's Day was a Sunday. I was now intervened, had met Jack, had met Bill, had been to my first meeting and really felt like I belonged because everybody was telling my story. And Jack and Bill just like followed me around. I mean, I didn't realize that this was part of the love story. But Jack would call me up and say, John, are you going to a meeting? And I'd say, yes. And he'd say, good, we'll pick you up. <laughs> and Bill would call me and say, John, are you going to a meeting? And I'd say, I don't think so tonight. He said, I really need a ride. Could you pick me up? 
I said, what does 90 meetings in 90 days mean? They said, it says in our literature that you should really try and get to a practice of constant attendance at meetings. He said, 90 and 90 doesn't mean much. I went to 175 meetings in the first 50 days. It meant uh, to them that you really went constant attendance at meetings. And, and you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't in the fellowship long because I came to my first meeting that Monday night was April 1st. So... I had to go away on a sales meeting. It was in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, and uh, it was at the end of April. I'd only been in AA about three or four weeks, and I said to Jack and Bill, you know, when I get to these kinds of places, everybody asks me to go out at night. They said, tell them you're sick and go to your room and lock the door. And they said, by the way, this is an honest program, so when you tell them you're sick, we want you to be aware of the fact, man, you are really sick. <laughs> so my national sales manager for the company that I was involved with at that time was a guy named Bill Wills and on Wednesday evening of this particular conference he said to me John I want you to come downtown with me tonight and we can talk about some things that will affect your future and I said Bill I'm really sick I can't do it and I went to my room and I locked the door and that night Bill turned his car over and was killed and I wasn't in the car because I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe that for everybody who comes here and stays, that we got here just in time. So I kept coming, and I loved the stories. I didn't get much out of the sharing. I didn't understand steps and relationships and honesty and tolerance and love of God and man at all. And I didn't know how talking about it was going to stop me from drinking. What really stopped me from drinking is that I felt that Jack and Bill would know if I got within a mile of a saloon, even if they were a thousand miles away. <laughs> and I had no intention of ever going to Jack and Bill and saying, I picked up. And I had no intention of them coming to me and saying, and they took me on 12-step calls right from the beginning. We, Bill particularly, used to 12-step everybody in South Jersey, I think, and he couldn't remember anybody's name, so he called everybody Gagoots. Hey, Gagoots, how are you today? You have a problem with alcohol? Come with me. And uh, I remember watching him one time with the, with the guy who was absolutely drunk. We went to the meeting after the meeting. Bill saying, come to another meeting tomorrow. And uh, we were all finished. And I, I said to Bill, you know, Bill, that guy was drunk. Bill says, yeah. I said, you didn't mention that fact to him. He said, he knows it. <laughs> in August, on August 15th of uh, that year, 1985, my cousin, who was 32 years old, was murdered. He owed some people some money, so they came to his home, and they beat him back inside with a baseball bat. They stabbed him to death, and they put his body on the couch, and they poured gasoline on him, and they lit him on fire. And uh, I'm from a big Irish family, and by the time of his funeral, they had caught the guy who did it. And the priest said to us at his funeral, revenge is a waste of time. And the way he said it was, the only way to change the world is to change yourself. 
And the only time to do that is right now. Because for the boy in the box, there's no more change and there's no more now. And when I left that funeral, I felt that that's what I had been hearing in AA, and I kind of think that that's when I really took the first step. And I drove back home, and I tried to remember what else I'd heard in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I couldn't remember anything, and for some reason I focused on how it works, which was read at every meeting I'd been to, I thought, and I couldn't remember any of it. So when I got back home, I called Jack, and I said, Jack, I can't remember what I'm hearing in AA. I, I mean, you know, I've heard, you know, you're supposed to take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Well, I must have had cotton in my ears. I just can't remember anything. I said, I can't even remember how it works. He said, do you remember when we first met? I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, uh, remember what we did? I said, yeah, you gave me a, the big book and you told me to read it. He said, have you done that yet? I said, no, I haven't. He said, why don't you try it now? Pay particular attention to chapter five. So I don't think that uh, I'll ever forget that rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And I went in and I saw a guy in the meeting and I, I, I kind of came through. And uh, I went into the meeting and I said to Fred, man, I just discovered that rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Fred says, yeah, but thoroughly have we seen a person fail who has rarely followed our path. <laughs> I'm feeling real good about hearing the first thing, and I didn't realize people were doing words, words, words all over the place. So I started to pay attention to what was happening, and uh, I started to listen to what people said in the rooms. And, and, and when I was 90 days sober, Bill took me to uh, back to Collegewood Monday night, and they were talking about how one of the most critical jobs in AA was a greeter, and that it was disappearing from the doors of the rooms. And Collingswood said, we should have a greeter, and Bill raised my hand and said, John volunteers. <laughs> and that's like my first service commitment. I stood at the door for a year and a half and uh, said, welcome to Collingswood Monday night. And uh, It was a great, great experience. I thought I liked people. I like, didn't want to do that job. But by the end, I just, I just loved that job. In any case, uh, my, uh, my kids were growing. I was a couple of years in AA, and, uh, you know, I became aware of the fact that I was the dysfunction in a, in a, in a, in a, in a family that had basically set all its uh, motions around my behavior. And uh, my... Uh, my kids got out of the house, the three oldest kids, and they all went nuts, including my, the 15-year-old that went to get my, uh, the priest, who's now 18 years old and away at college for the first time, and he got arrested for being drunk and disorderly in the first week he was out of the house. And it's, to me, the indication that alcoholism is a disease, because if there's anybody who would avoid the, disease, the, the calamity of alcoholism, it's somebody who was raised in it. And yet... If you got it, you can't avoid it. Fortunately, there is a solution. And that's part of what this uh, story is all about, because uh, as I kept coming to that same home group, I asked Jack and Bill to sponsor me uh, on uh, June 10th of 1985, and 
I like my dates. I'd, I'd like to keep them, please God. I got sober on St. Patrick's Day. I came to AA on April Fool's Day, and I got sponsorship on the 50th anniversary of AA. And uh, Jack is uh, still my sponsor. Bill moved to Brooklyn, and we get together every once in a while. And it's, uh, it's just been, you know, an, an incredible, incredible journey with those guys and with everybody else that I've met in this program. I was sober about a year when, uh, when my daughter, uh, it was, actually it was her birthday, and it was uh, Memorial Day, and we were having a cookout, and Jack and Bill were there, and uh, she was out in my car, and, and uh, she had an accident. And the police came by to tell me on the way to investigate the accident. When you are in a small town with a large family, you all know all the police, so. Um, and they took me over, and Bill came with me, and when I got to the scene of the accident, I found... Uh, I found that my daughter had run into the rear of a Mercedes-Benz. And I had a brand new car, and it had been a stop for a cat kind of a thing, so the rear of the Mercedes went up, and the Oldsmobile went down, and, you know, the Oldsmobile front end was in the trunk. And the uh, Mercedes was pretty banged up, too. And, but my daughter was still sitting in the car and uh, holding on to the steering wheel. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get to work? Look, this car's only two weeks old. Up, 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 up. And Bill says, when are you going to give her a hug? And I went over to the car, and I opened the door, and I said, uh, now I'm doing this because my sponsor's looking. <laughs> I want you to clearly understand. And I said, are you all right? And she let go of the wheel and came up in my arms and hugged me so hard that I couldn't believe it. She was really, really upset. And she was probably more upset because I was there, because this daughter is the daughter that had spent five days in a coma. And the way that I knew how to comfort her was because I had an alcoholic sponsor who told me to give her a hug. About the love of God and man, we know nothing and I think I've forgotten about most things material since that point in time because it changed my relationship with people. The, the feeling that I got from the hug I got from that daughter. When she got married uh, several years later, she had a special song and she, and she had a special non-alcoholic drink so that I could toast, but she had a, a special song so that I could dance with her as daddy's little girl. And uh, the, the, the son also, uh, when he got married, I was his best man. See, they've gotten through some of this because it is a family disease, but there is family recovery. So when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, my, my oldest was uh, 17 years old, and uh, I was always sweating money. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And kind of from that point in time when I gave her that hug, I've kind of forgotten about money. And money is really basically taking care of itself. It isn't worth worrying about. i got to do what I'm supposed to do. But I now have seven children graduated from college. Two of them are married. I have three daughters getting married this year. <laughs> we have two grandchildren. At the uh, early part of this year, both our uh, grandchildren and their parents were living with us. 
We have ten kids, seven left the house. There's still nine living there. I don't know how the man <laughs> At about three years sober, my home group came to me and said, we think you have a problem other than alcohol. So I decided that they were right and that the problem was my wife. And uh, the kids had been going through all of this stuff. Sean had just been arrested. And so we decided to go to marriage counseling. And we got to uh, marriage counseling and we did a couple of stints, one by myself, one by herself, one together. And when we came together, the counselor from the University of Medicine and Dentistry in the, uh, in the state of New Jersey and, and uh, you know, a, a lady psychiatrist, uh, highly recommended, highly credentialed, said to us, I don't have a patient here and uh, I want you to go get individual counseling because you don't have the basis for a relationship. I said, we're married 20 years and have 10 kids. She said, that's not the basis for a relationship. So my wife went to one doctor and I went to another doctor. And uh, I began uh, an intense psychotherapy and I was started on Prozac. And uh, he diagnosed me as uh, probably the most severely depressed individual that he'd ever seen. And what he said to me was that... Uh, you know, you could go to Alcoholics Anonymous with a broken leg, and if you double your meetings, you will stay sober while that net, while that leg heals incorrectly. And he said, uh, we're going to treat your emotions, and we're going to have to break them apart and start over. And so I want you to double your Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, because it's only Alcoholics Anonymous that's going to keep you sober. I can't do this. And so I was treated for 18 months uh, on Prozac and for about uh, 27 months with uh, therapy every week, lots of stuff. And I came up out of the depression and I came to understand that just what it says in our book, I needed special help to understand what it says in our steps, that the underlying cause of all our woes, even our alcoholism, is our inability to form a good relationship or a true partnership with another human being. And the reason why that happens, in my opinion, is because we have no value of ourselves. We give nothing. It's how we treated ourselves is a great symptom of the fact that we cast our pearls before swine. We gave ourselves away as if we were worthless, and everything we gave then was received as with no value. And I had the experience, I've sponsored several guys who, who died, and one, one gentleman killed himself. And he killed himself in front of the Silver Saddle Saloon in Camden, New Jersey, and he made a living for 25 years as a, as a pharmaceutical chemist with Campbell Soup Company. And he could carve driftwood so that it, you'd swear that it was a living bird. And he was, he was, he could play six musical instruments. He is like every alcoholic that I've ever met, a multi-talented, multi-faceted person, and the only one who didn't know it was him. And the last thing he said to the barmaid when he walked out the door was that nobody cares about me. And he stepped outside and he put the gun to his head and he pulled the trigger. 
and I identified his body in the morgue. And I can tell you that he didn't find any peace because the purpose of life is not to leave it. And the look on his face was one of abject misery. And there were 300 people at his funeral. And he didn't know that they all cared about him. It is the truest thing that we say here is that you can't give away what you don't have. And in order to involve myself with love, I have to first learn to love myself. The great commandment says, love your neighbor as yourself. But our impairment is how much we hate ourselves. And look at what we do to ourselves. So, my wife and I are still together. This year we'll be married 33 years. <clears throat> one of the things that happened is that we got set free I got to go to Jerusalem some time ago for a couple of weeks and I asked my wife to go and she said I have no intention to go there and that's part of what's happened you see we're allowed to communicate with each other honestly and to say what we want to say and to act the way we want to act and to be the persons that we want to be, and she really didn't want to go. In the past, I would have insisted that she go. We'd have both been miserable. And, uh, but she, she really didn't want to go, and she said, take Sean. So I took my son, and we went. We had a, had a really wonderful time. We met a couple of people there, and, and one lady and I were talking about uh, happiness. And in that discussion, I said that I thought that happiness was a memory. And she said, uh, why? And I said, I can look back over my life and see the times that I was happy, but I'm not sure that I knew it at the time. And she said, I really feel sorry for you. I said, why? She said, because I'm happy now, and I know it. And once I met somebody who had expressed that kind of philosophy, I knew that it was possible for me too, and I knew that that's what I was hearing here. That they were telling me how I could be happy in the moment. You know, a day at a time is a lot of time. That the only time we have is this instant. As a matter of fact, there's a book called The Course in Miracles that says that the only aspect of eternity which we'll ever get to experience in this life is now. Now is the time. I should never drink now. I should be happy now. I should be paying attention to what I'm doing now. I should live in this wonderful moment. I should experience the joy of living that God requires of me. And God has shown me that he loves me madly, wildly, insanely, unconditionally. And he loves every single one of us in the exact same way. There is absolutely nothing that I can do that will make God love me anymore. And there is absolutely nothing that I can do that will make him love me any less. All I am asked to do is to exercise my God-given freedom to accept his love because it's offered. And if we use it the way he intends us to use it and don't abuse it, life really is a joy.
Life on life's terms are wonderful. They're just incredible. I've gotten to do so many things. I've gotten to watch all these kids grow up. I've gotten to see them graduate from college. My grandson was born, and at his christening, my seventh child and third son gave him a T-shirt that says, My Uncle Bill's Nuclear Submarine. I've gotten to go to all of their graduations from their various schools, their graduate schools. I can tell you that we live in a great country that helps us to do those things that we can't do by ourselves. That all I have is my ego and ask for help in everything that I do. I need you to help me live my life. I am a dependent personality of the highest order who has discovered that Alcoholics Anonymous supports my dependency without asking me to give up my freedom. And freedom is the most difficult thing that we are given to live with. I was not free when I was using alcohol. But I am free today. And freedom is hard. Freedom asks you to choose the correct next right thing. How do I know what the next right thing is? It's because I have the steps. Because I have the ability to seek God's knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry it out. I have found that I am a highly talented, very gifted person, and I never unwrapped my gifts until you showed me how. And when I came here, you told me that it was easy for me to say that I'm an alcoholic and that I can't do anything. But what you asked me to do was to put away my self-pity to take responsibility for the gifts I've been given and to use them in service to the mankind that I am a part of. And that's what makes the joy of living wonderful. I, uh, I have a couple of things going on right now. I'm the, I'm the director of community development for the little town in which I live. And I'm also president of a company called Inco, which uh, is a partnership between myself and a and a gentleman who was born and raised in Beijing, China, and fled China from Tiananmen Square in 1989. I have been back and forth to China several times, and uh, one of the things that uh, one of the things that's, that's that's happened that's just wonderful is that I I did this because the mayor lives next door to me, and he asked me to help him out with the town. And I was just trying to give something back to a town which I raised ten children and has given so much to me. And uh, i got to tell you that uh, the recognition I've received for the work that I've done has been just incredible. And nobody really realizes that the only thing I'm doing is practicing these principles in all my affairs. And that it's not me. It's not me. It's just like it says in the literature. Of myself I am nothing. The Father doeth the works. And in that way, I went to China one time and I met with a, with a, with a Chinese official of the central government who took me out to dinner. And when we went out to dinner, we had two big lazy Susans in front of us. One side was full of booze. I mean, there was every kind of booze that you could have ever imagined from the Orient, from all over the world, from France, from the United States. It was the biggest lazy Susan I've ever seen. And one that wasn't slightly, uh, was about the same size, was loaded with food. 
And uh, we went through dinner and we talked about lots of things, uh, human rights being one of them and some other things that were part of the agenda. And when this was in a hotel in Shanghai, China, and when I was finished, I uh, and we were finished our dialogue, and we had said our goodbyes, I got up and the restaurant was in the hotel, so I went to the elevator. And while I was standing waiting for the elevator, the, uh, the official came to me again with his interpreter and he said, I have to tell you something privately. He said, you're the first white man I ever met and the first Westerner that I've ever met. And I tried to prepare for this by making you comfortable. And uh, therefore, I had heard that you like alcohol. <laughs> I noticed uh, through all through dinner that you didn't uh, touch any alcohol. I watched very carefully. He said, I have to change all my thinking about the West. He said, I have to tell you that I'm just amazed. And I said, so am I. <laughs> One of, the, uh, one of the gentlemen that I sponsored died of AIDS, and uh, he's 32 years old. He's a good-looking guy. He had been a United States Marine. And at the end of his life, I sat with him in his, uh, in his sister's home. And he said to me, I'm afraid. He said, I have come to the realization that every single thing I have done in my life is because of a decision and a choice that I made by myself. And all through my life, I've tried to blame it on other people, and now I know that I can, and I'm afraid. And he said, my family won't touch me because of this disease. And he said, I have no place to go. So, because of you teaching me that it's okay to hug guys, we were able to sit down on the couch and I was able to put my arm around him and to tell him that when I can come to that kind of a realization, that I'm truly responsible for everything that I do, that I will have arrived at the place that God wants me to be because God doesn't want me to become something different. All he wants me to do is to be the best me that I can be. And I said, you've arrived. So the only thing left for you to do is to accept the forgiveness that God has given you and that every single person who knows you has given you and to forgive yourself. And he died that night. which I think is a great gift, the ability to be at peace. His family was with him when he died. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. They said he got up, went to the bathroom, came back, got in bed, put his head down in the pillow and stopped breathing. What a peaceful way to go. And when I was sitting with his brothers and sisters after uh, his death, they said, uh, thank you, Lord, for making him go so peacefully. And by the way, I hope it's still peaceful up there because you've got them now.
we leave that kind of mixed signal wherever we go. We people who disrupt so many lives and then learn through the 12 steps that we can make amends and come back and do something differently with our lives. And by our lives to touch other people, to carry the message, to pass it on. To pass on the joy of living, to be able to see in us the only copy of the big book that anybody might ever see. It has been my great pleasure to have served Alcoholics Anonymous in lots of capacities, and I hope that I will continue to get to serve Alcoholics Anonymous because, as Bill said in his last address, I salute you and I thank you for your lives because it's in your lives that I have found mine. When I look at you and I find in you the image and likeness of God, then I can find myself reflected. And I can't deny my worth. I have to unwrap my gifts, and I have to use what I've been given in the service of us. When I was uh, doing some research through our literature, I came to uh, uh, the little red book that's called Came to Believe. And in that book, I found uh, something that I, I really like to paraphrase because it says there that I sought my soul, my soul I could not see. I sought my God. My God eluded me. I sought another alcoholic, and I found all three. In finding you, I have found me. About this whole life, from the intervention that I was given by the grace of God, to this point here, I have, through all the meetings, wherever I've sat, all I have come to understand is how great love is. And love is not a feeling. Love is a decision that requires courage and work to expand our spiritual growth. And I have, as I said, met some spiritual giants in here, and it's been my privilege to sit with lots of them this weekend. And I believe that every single person in here has that same capability, that the miracle was given because of the talent that has yet to be used, that the miracle was given so that you can carry the message to those who are still suffering, that the people who have not yet heard of Alcoholics Anonymous and who are dying are entitled to the same thing that you're entitled to, this wondrous spirit, the sunlight of the spirit that makes us all children of God. And I am very, very grateful to the opportunity to have been here. And I feel very, very strongly about what it says and how it works, that the most important thing that we can do is to understand that we were alcoholics and couldn't manage our own lives, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, and that God could and would if he were sought. And so, like I said at the beginning, when I think of, of AA, I kind of think of a love story. And I think of how it ends is kind of the way it ends when I think of the song Amazing Grace. Because it says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, 
now I see. For that I salute you.